Thank you again for today. And we pray. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. If you believe that we serve a faithful God, would you say amen this morning? Amen. Absolutely do serve a faithful God. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing in our journey through the gospel of Luke. We are at the end of chapter number 19 uh, there, so if you want to turn there. And we come to two very interesting uh, situations that I think really kind of are one uh, scenario there um, that we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verse 41 when you get there. But let me ask you a question before we begin this morning. Have you ever had your heart broken? By that I mean someone did something, someone said something, intentional, unintentional, whatever it may be, and it wounded you, it hurt you, it broke your heart. Well, I'm pretty sure that unless you're a child today or you don't interact with people at all, it's pretty safe that you've probably dealt with some heartbreak, right? Probably dealt with some wounds, some things there. As a matter of fact, I know this to be true so much so that there's actually a genre of music all about it. Do you know what that genre of music is? Country music, right? So whenever I think about country music, I have to ask this question. You may have heard this before, so you can give some answers if you want. But do you know what you get when you play a country song backwards? You get your dog back, you get your truck back, get your boat back, your house back, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or your spouse back. You, you ever notice that, right? And we have this whole genre because we deal with being heartbroken, being upset over these things. Well, as we move into what we're going to look at today, we're going to see this in a more serious sense. But as we saw last week, we saw that Jesus and his followers have made it to Jerusalem. They finally have gone through three and a half years of ministry. They're on their last week here, what we call Passion Week, uh, there, and they're now making their way into Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to see many things happen, the final Passover uh, feast that Jesus has with his disciples, and ultimately the cross and resurrection of Jesus. But as they came into the city, you remember last week, there was a great celebration, there was a great parade, they were cheering and so excited that Jesus was coming in, they were recognizing him as being the king, but unfortunately that celebration was very short-lived. No one truly understood the ramifications of that week except for Jesus. On one hand, the result of the week would bring a glorious resurrection and salvation for mankind, but on the other hand... It really meant the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And the reality of this is this broke Jesus' heart. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not, but I want to get in your mind your thought as we start walking down this road here today. Have you ever thought about God having a broken heart? Jesus' heart broke. Again, as Luke does throughout this journey, not everything is in chronological order, so we really don't know kind of where this, these two things uh, fit in, whether they're kind of right after um, his, his journey in, did he come all the way into Jerusalem, or, or did he stay outside the city? We, we don't know that. All we know is that we find Jesus outside the city of Jerusalem here, and as he stands outside the city of Jerusalem, he looks back at the city. 
And the Bible tells us that he is so moved over the city that he weeps. That he cries because he's brokenhearted. But why is he brokenhearted over the city? Well, let's look at that today. Verse 41, and when he, that's Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus becoming physically moved, physically upset to tears over the city, but why was he so heartbroken? Why was he so upset? What is he referring to here? Well, Jesus is upset because they missed it. They completely missed it. In other words, their sin blinded them to the truth of who he truly was. He was their Messiah. He was their King. And you say, well, Pastor, didn't they just sing about that? Didn't they celebrate that? Yes, they did, but Jesus knew their hearts. You ever... uh, get caught up with the crowd? Have you ever gotten pulled into something? that? And, and a lot of these people that were celebrating, Jesus got pulled into the celebration, to the cheering, to the excitement that was going on, and they jumped on board. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that on that day of celebration of them just praising Him, that in just a few short days, those cries of celebration would be cries of hatred and cries of crucify. He knew that they were going to turn. They they were going to change their way. He knew that sin was in their heart. He knew that they had all the information they needed to make known that He was the Messiah, who He was, but yet they were going to choose to not accept Him. You see, the religious leaders, well, they started it all off. The religious leaders chose not to accept him because they wanted to keep the power. They wanted to have that power. The people uh, were only interested in being freed from Rome. They didn't want anything else. They didn't look for anything else. And the end result was the fact that they rejected him. Their sin kept them from their Messiah. And Jesus knew that. And it broke his heart. Jesus mourns over Jerusalem and the people, and then he does something amazing. He prophesies their future. He tells, he speaks out here, not to anybody else, but to himself. He knows what the future holds. He he, he knows what's going to happen, and he speaks it out here in verse 43 for us. We have, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize who I was. You rejected me. And it's so amazing here that Jesus lays out exactly what happens to Jerusalem. Jesus is so specific in what he says here in their destruction and what's going to happen to the city that he he lays it out, not one stone will be left. Everything will be torn down. The, The whole city will be destroyed. Now, Jesus said this. This is probably around 30 to 33 AD, uh, about this time. 
And we know historically that in 70 AD, about 40 years from now, that the Romans come and they encircle the city. They barricade it for an entire summer so that the people are starving. They can't get in supplies. They can't get in. They can't get out. Isn't that what Jesus said? When your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Jesus said exactly what was going to happen. And then after that, they came, the Roman general Titus uh, comes with the Roman uh, soldiers and they breach the city and they destroy the city. And history tells us that once, that every stone was moved, that not one stone was left on top of the other. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Of course, he's God. He knows. But why is that significant? What, what does that mean for us? Well, I think in this passage of Scripture, we see something very important for us that we need to understand. Jesus was heartbroken because he understood the effect of the sin that was in their lives. He knew what sin was going to do to them. And listen, that same thing happens to us when sin is in our lives. Can I show you the five things that, that's in this passage that sin always does? When we allow sin in our lives, the first one is it blinds us to the truth. It causes us to doubt the truth. We have the Word of God, but how many times in our sin do we forget about the Word of God and we look towards man's things? How, how often in our sin do we turn away from what the truth of the Bible is and we try to do it ourselves? We try to do our own thing. I've got my own plan. How many times do we get into struggles in, in our lives and we allow sin into our lives and it's just going to be my way, and we don't follow the truth of the Word of God. That's gotten me, me in trouble more times than I can count. How about you? It blinds us to the truth. Sin ensnares us. It entangles us. It, it, it draws us in. It entraps us. Just like they were caught in that city, their sin gets around us, and we, in a way, seem that we can't get out, and we can't get out without God, and we're pulled in. And then when we are ensnared by that sin, sin always tears us down. It always destroys us. It always pulls us down. It always moves us farther away from God. Sin always does more to us than what we think it's ever going to do. And it brings death. It brings destruction every single time in our life. You know, whenever you allow sin in your life, whenever you make a choice for sin, even if it's a brief time that you allow sin into your life, it causes hurt and pain in your life. And not only does it cause hurt and pain, in your life, but sin never only affects you, it hurts others. I think it's so fitting that Jesus said, listen, not only is it you, but your children, your children are going to die because of what the, what's going to come and what's going to seize. Your sin never only affects you. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, it's just to bother me, it just affects me, it doesn't affect anyone else. That is the greatest lie from the pit of hell. Sin always affects you, but it always affects those closest to you as well. It always has a ripple effect, and it always hurts. And then ultimately, ultimately sin completely destroys the city was torn down completely, devastated by the Romans in AD 70. And that's the, same, that's the same picture, the same vision in our life when we allow sin to come into our life, that it tears us down, it destroys us. It destroys us physically, it destroys us spiritually, it destroys us. And as a result of understanding the true consequences of sin, Jesus looks at Jerusalem, and he doesn't get angry at this point, 
he weeps. Your sin makes God cry. Your sin breaks his heart. I want you to get that thought settled in your mind. So I think we think of sin so often in a judicial sense that basically, oh, I did something wrong, now i got to go before the judge and he's going to give me my, my penalty and it's going to be okay and we're good. No, it's not the fact that we sin and we go before a judge and he judges us. It's that we sin and we rip our Father's heart out in doing it. There is nothing harder for a parent than to watch your child go down a pathway that you know is destroying them. Your heart becomes ripped out. And it's the same way as our Heavenly Father when He sees us choosing sin over Him. His heart is broken. This is why sin is so serious to God. Let's do a little experiment here this morning. Let me ask you uh, a question. Do you know why the things that are given in the Bible that are sin are called sin? Do you know why? Because everything that is labeled as sin in the Word of God is something that will hurt you. It's not because God is a killjoy and doesn't want you to have fun. It's not because God is up there wanting to have power and authority over you. God is saying, don't do this because in the end, it hurts you. It destroys you. It messes up your relationships. It messes up your life. It messes up your health. It messes up everything in you. Sin is sin because God doesn't want us to be hurt. God is so passionate about this, and Jesus being the greatest representative of God is so passionate about this that we see this move now from him being outside of Jerusalem, uh, having this time of weeping and, and heartbrokenness, to now, well, moving into the city and dealing firsthand with the sin that we deal with. Now, I want you to keep in your mind the idea of being heartbroken. As we move into verse 45, and he says, And he entered the temple. And when he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So we come to this, and we, we, we know this story. We know this scenario. We see the anger of Jesus come out, and he flips over tables, and he throws out the merchants, and all this kind of stuff that, that's happening there. And sometimes we, we wonder, why is he doing this or why can he have that type of anger can i paint the picture for you this is the beginning of passover week this is the week that they celebrate the exodus from uh being enslaved by the egyptians hundreds of years before and the thing that protected them and kept them was them sacrificing a perfect lamb and dipping that blood dip, dipping some branches into that lamb and putting it over the door Posts, which they didn't understand then, but we understand now is a perfect picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. This was a time of celebration of the Exodus, but it was also a very holy time. It was a time of worship. It was a time of, of thinking about God and His provision and, his, and thinking about how He helps us and takes care of us and provides for us and is always there for us. And Jesus comes into the temple thinking He's going to walk into this temple, the house of God, where there's going to be praising and celebration of God, and there's going to be praying and thanks and uh, things of God being done, and he walks in, and he walks into a flea market. I mean, literally. 
He walks into little booths all over the place and animals making noise and birds over here and sheep over here and exchanging of money and all this kind of stuff. And then he recognizes the signs that are up and they're saying, uh, we'll give you, you know, exchange your money for this amount. They were stealing from the people. They were making a profit in the house of God. I don't think Jesus was worried about all the selling and, and things that were going on, although he was upset that they were not celebrating and worshiping God. But I think the reality was is that they were blatantly and openly sinning in the midst of God's house and in the midst of the celebration that was to be a holy expression unto God. They didn't care. They were cheating the people. They were lying. They were stealing. What was to be a holy ceremony had become an act of greed, lying, and cheating. Now get the picture. Jesus standing outside of Jerusalem, weeping and crying because he recognizes their sin and what's going to happen as a result of their sin. And then he walks into the temple and boom, he's hit square in the face with their blatant sin. They don't care. They don't care. We're going to, not only are we going to sin, but we're going to do it right in the house of God. It doesn't bother us. No big deal. Right? And we see the re- righteous anger and reaction of Jesus in this moment. I think we see the humanness and holiness of God in one full swoop because, because he had every right to be righteously angry because of what they were doing in the house of God. But I think we see here the humanness, the emotions welling up in him to the point of, of fervor because he's like, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know how you're destroying yourself? Don't you know that your acts are destroying you and that your acts are also destroying these other people that are here? Do you not understand how you are destroying one another because of your sin. I think he was passionate about that. And so as Jesus was driving out the merchants, we hear Jesus making a statement. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was quoting the prophets here, prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah And I think this shows his authority of his actions, but it also shows us Jesus' heart. Listen to me very carefully. I believe what Jesus was conveying in his actions and in his word, he was saying that he was conveying that this is God's house. It is to be a place of help. It is to be a place of comfort. It is a place for you to find the grace of God. It is a place for you to come and worship God. It is a place for you to come and be with God. But you have turned it into a place of hurt. You have turned it into a place of stress. You have turned it into a place of stealing and mourning and sin. I think also maybe a little bit that Jesus said, I know this sin is going to eventually destroy you, but not if I have anything to say about it. I think he wanted it stopped because he knew what was going to happen with the sin. And Jesus reacts to the people, which in turn, <laughs> as always, sets off the Pharisees. <laughs> they get angry. But why do they get angry? And this is so important. Listen to me very carefully. Especially if you hold a place of leadership. 
And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal, uh, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging around, uh, uh, hanging on his words were there. They couldn't get to Jesus because of the people, but look what they do. Because of his actions, because of the way that he's, he's there, the Pharisees react in a way that it solidifies that they want to kill him, that they want to destroy him. Why? Because listen carefully. Do you know why the merchants were in the house of God? Do you know the reason why they were selling? Because the Pharisees wanted him there. The leadership, those who were supposed to know better, those who were supposed to be in charge, said, no, we want you to do this. Why? Because they were making money. They were getting kickbacks as well. Look at the blatant sin that is rampant. Jesus exposed their sin as much as he exposed everyone else's. They were the ones, as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us, they were the ones charged with keeping watch over the souls of the people. Listen to me very carefully. If you are in any leadership here today, if you're an elder or a pastor or even a teacher, you are charged by God to keep the souls of the people. The way you act, the things that you choose, the things that you allow. Sin never only affects you. It affects everyone around you. So what do they do? They recognize their sin? No, they don't recognize their sin. They double down. They get angry. They, they want to destroy Jesus. And here's the interesting part of all of this, building all the way up to this. Here's the interesting part. Are you ready? Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Not much has changed. Oh, we don't celebrate the Passover anymore. It's Easter now for us because we celebrate the resurrection. We do as a church have policies about buying and selling things in, in church. But the problem is still the same. And it's sin. We live in a world that is completely broken by sin. And really, in this world, sin is absolutely not a big deal at all. Did you ever notice that? As a matter of fact, we no longer even call sin sin in our world any longer. We have different words for them. For the alcoholic and drug addict, they're no longer committing any sin. That's a disease. For the liar and the cheater, we don't call that sin any longer. We say they have a personality flaw. For the thief, we don't call that sin any longer. We say they have financial problems. For those in the LGBTQ community, we don't call that sin any longer. We say it's just a different lifestyle. You see, the things that the Bible called sin, the world says, is no longer sin. But can I let you in on a secret? If God called it sin... It's still sin in the 21st century. You see, because the real problem is, and the thing that we deal with is this mentality is not only in the world any longer. It's the same in the church. You see, the church has adapted the same thing that the world has adapted. Either you follow the same standards and the same labels, or what you do is you call it sin, but you justify it by telling yourself that you're not as bad as others are. It'll be okay. 
I have even had people come to me and say, and I don't, I, I don't know why they say this because I know it's sin, Pastor, but I'll just ask forgiveness of it later. That's an abuse of God's grace. And then when we do sin and we are convicted by it, (laughs) we throw up a little insignificant generic prayer to God and ask for forgiveness. Something like this, Dear God, you know that thing I did the other day that probably you didn't like? You know know what I'm talking about, right? Could you just maybe please forgive me? And that's it. And we actually believe, we actually believe that He does. Can I warn you? He doesn't. Sin is serious with God. God is serious about sin. Because the sin that we let in our lives and we don't take care of, and we don't uh, ask forgiveness of and let God wash away from us in our lives, will ultimately and always will destroy us. Always. And just as he did over Jerusalem, God is heartbroken and God weeps over our sin and over our flippant attitude towards it. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, sin is very serious. We've got to remember that sin is very serious. It upsets God because it is the antithesis of God. Sin is the absolute opposite of God. But we also need to understand that this is because God doesn't want us to destroy ourselves and God desires a relationship with us. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but God wants a relationship with you. And sin separates us from God. When we are lost, before we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, before we ever come to Him, it is that sin that keeps us separated, that when we recognize that we are sinners and we are in need of a Savior, God had already sent His Son to die on the cross to pay for all of our sins. He's already made a way. We are the ones that sinned against Him, and yet He said, I will make it right. And all we have to do is come to Him and receive what He has already paid for. Repent of our sin. Ask forgiveness of our sin. Believe in His death, burial, and resurrection and come into our lives. But the reality is, and the struggle is, and this is a struggle, because we still live in this body of flesh, every one of us, even after we're saved, unfortunately, we struggle with sin. And we are until we get to glory. So how do we deal with it? How do we, how do we keep uh, the relationship right even though we, we choose sin? How, how do we not break God's heart? Well, we must look at sin the way that God looks at sin. That's first and foremost. We must have the right mentality about sin. And here it is. God hates sin. He hates it. He doesn't laugh at it. He doesn't snirk at it. He doesn't say, oh, well, they're going to, no. 
He hates it. Why does God hate sin? Because it destroys your testimony. Because it hurts others through your sin. And most importantly, because it hurts you. Do you, do you see that God is not up in heaven wanting to squash those who sin, who sin? He's up in heaven going, don't do it because you're going to hurt yourself. Do you see the love of God in this? God's just a killjoy. God doesn't want me to have any fun. God doesn't. No, God wants you to survive because sin wants to destroy you. If Satan could get his hands on you, he'd destroy you right now. He's not your friend. He's not your buddy. He's not anybody to hang around with. He wants to kill you and destroy you. And God knows it. God hates sin because it always brings destruction. It always kills us. It's nothing to play around with. I wrote this down. I hope this comes across the way it was in my mind. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But in the same manner as I hope a sane parent wouldn't allow their child to play with a king cobra, right? In the same way a parent wouldn't let a child play with a king cobra, no matter how bad that child wanted to play with that king cobra, God is strict about sin because the result of the cobra and the sin is exactly the same, death. God is serious about sin. And we must be serious enough to hate sin as God does. Now the sad reality is that in this life, as I have already said, and it's the struggle, we will choose sin. That's why the Holy Spirit who loves us convicts us of sin. He doesn't convict us to tear us down, He convicts us to get it right. And when He convicts us of our sin, what we need to do immediately is to repent of our sin. Remember, I told you that little frivolous prayer of God, you know what I did kind of thing, will you forgive me? That's not repentance. Repentance is specific. Repentance is remorseful. Repentance is going to God and going, God, I told that lie, and I shouldn't have told that lie. And I ask that you forgive me of that. And also, that forgiveness of God comes in, but it also goes a little bit farther. Did you make that situation right? doesn't start, stop with God and getting forgiveness there. It's going to the person you lied to and making it right, you see. Repentance is taking serious. Repentance is specifically praying for your sins. And I said this a while back, but I'll say it also again. You know this. Guess what? God already knows your sin before you tell him about it. God, I can't tell you what I did. He already knows. So just tell him. You're not going to say anything to God that the sin that you committed. And he goes, <gasps> did you hear what he said? God's heart is already breaking because of that sin. Tell him, repent of it. Repent of your sin. And then not only are we to repent But we will, when we do repent, when we honestly repent of our sin, we will receive forgiveness. Isn't that good? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that confession is to confess specifically our sins, the sins that we have committed. 
When we come with a repentant heart, a remorseful heart, and ask forgiveness of our sin, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's true repentance. And the reason why and the number one thing that God wants to forgive us and wants us to repent of our sin is because sin puts a barrier between our relationship between Him and us. Once we accept Him as Lord and Savior, that that relationship of father and child never changes. He is our Lord. He is our Father forever. But that relationship can be be strained, right? The relationship can be strained because of sin. And God hates it when the relationship is strained. I, I, I wish I could say this in a way that you would, would really grasp onto this. Because I want you to really grasp the love of God in this. But God hates being separated from you. God wants to walk with you and be with you and, and have sweet fellowship with you every single moment of your life until you get to glory. Eternal life begins the second you accept Him as Lord and Savior, and He wants to be with you every step of the way. And so He desires for us more than anything to say no to sin. And how do we do that? By keeping a close relationship with Him. By staying prayed up. By praying one simple prayer, I think, is so vital that it should be part of every part of our prayer. The psalmist says, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there's any iniquity in me. Reveal it to me that I might be right with you. You see, God wants you to get right with sin because he wants to have a right relationship with you. And God, more than you, hates to be separated from you because of sin. And if we would get a hold of that truth, it would radically, radically change us. So can I leave you with this? God is serious about sin because He's serious about you. Don't let your sin break God's heart. Would you stand with me in God's house today? Oh God, thank you so much for your outrageous love, a love that is so incomprehensible, a love that even though we sin against you, looks at that sin and is heartbroken, hates that sin because of the destruction and hates it because of the separation, that you, God, desire to be with us even more so than we desire to be with you. Oh God, I pray if there's a person here today that has never accepted you as Lord and Savior, they will not leave here without establishing that relationship with you. And I pray, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, for your conviction of your people. And Lord, I pray that as you convict, they will repent. And as they repent, that relationship will be restored and strengthened with you. Bless the remainder of this week now. We give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.